0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English, and they've given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 159 by Rudolf Steiner, 15 lectures entitled The Mystery of Death, Translated by Simon Blaxland DeLange, this is Lecture 8, given in Vienna on the 9th of May, 1915, entitled The War, a Pathological Process, Central Europe and the Slavic East, the dead as the helpers of human progress. Our Spiritual Scientific World Conception should not only be focusing its attention upon the development and ascendancy of individual souls, but it must also, above all else, really help us to gain further insights into our outlook upon life. In our time, it should be of particular concern to us to acquire such further insights for our evaluation of life. To be sure, it is a great and also meaningful task for the individual human being to further his own development through what he can gain as the fruit of spiritual scientific self-education. And it is only because human individuals progress in their development that they are able to contribute to the development of mankind as a whole. But our attention should not be directed to this alone. We should, as people who identify with the anthroposophical world conception, also, be able to be aware of the great events of our time from a high perspective, from a truly spiritual perspective. We should indeed be able to shift our minds to a higher standpoint in judging what is going on. Some perspectives with regard to the great events of our time will be shared today, because our present meeting has been convened at this fateful time. Let us begin. With something that can deeply affect us as human beings. At certain times, people fall ill. Illnesses are usually regarded as something harmful to our organism, as something that invades it as a hostile force. However, such a commonly held viewpoint is by no means always justified. To be sure, there are certain illnesses which must be judged from this standpoint, where the illness invades our organism in a sense, as an enemy. But this is not always so. It is not even so in the majority of cases. For illness is by and large something altogether different. In most cases, illness is not the enemy, but actually the friend of the organism. The actual enemy of the organism precedes the illness in the majority of cases. It develops within a person before the outbreak of the outwardly visible illness. There are opposing forces in the organism, and the illness that erupts at a particular point is the organism's attempt to defend itself against these opposing forces, which had not previously been noticed. The illness is often the beginning of the organism's work to bring about healing. It is what the organism undertakes to battle against the hostile influences that precede the illness. It is the last form of the process, but it signifies the struggle of the good bodily fluids against what is lurking below. Its function is to drive this out from the organism. Only if we look upon the greatest majority of illnesses in this way do we arrive at a true conception of the process of illness. The illness is, therefore, an indication that something preceded its outbreak which is being expelled from the organism by the illness. If many of life's phenomena are seen in the right light, one arrives very easily at what has just been said. The causes may lie in the greatest variety of areas. The essential point is, however, that, as has been indicated, we should view illnesses as the organism's defense against things that must be expelled from it. Now, I do not think that there is a comparison that is so appropriate than the comparison of such a quantity of significant, deeply incisive events, as we have now been experiencing over a large part of the earth since the beginning of August 1914, with a pathological process affecting human development. We cannot help thinking that these events associated with the war are indeed a pathological process. But it would be wrong to think that it is good enough if we were simply to conceive of this pathological process in the false sense that many illnesses are conceived, as if it were the enemy of the organism. The underlying cause precedes the manifestation of the illness. It is especially striking in our time how little people are inclined in our time to take such truths into account, which anyone— who embraces the world conception of spiritual science, not merely with his intellect, but also with his feelings, must immediately find perfectly plausible. In the course of the last, say, nine months, we have had to undergo an infinite amount of painful experiences, experiences that have had to do with people's faculty of judgment. Is it not indeed the case that if one reads what is conclusively disseminated, through the literature that is read by most people, and emanating from many different countries of the earth, it would appear that those who pass judgments about present events would presume that everything began in July 1914. This has been the most distressing experience that we have had to undergo, in addition to all the other pain, that it has become apparent that particularly the people whose views tend to prevail, especially those who write newspaper articles, and determine the official opinion, actually know nothing of how events came about, and only look at their most immediate context. Hence there have been endless discussions which have been completely beside the point. Where lies the cause of the present military conflicts? Again and again people ask, Is this or that party responsible? In virtually every case they do not go further back than to July or possibly June 1914. I mention this because it really is so characteristic of our materialistic age. People generally think that materialism only brings a materialistic way of thinking, a materialistic conception of the world. This is not so. Materialism does not only bring this about, but it also brings short-sightedness. Materialism brings laziness of thinking and lack of insight. A materialistic way of thinking leads to the idea that one can prove and believe anything. And it is part of that inner education that a right understanding of anthroposophy must give us that enables us to see that if one does not venture beyond the realm of materialism, it is possible to prove and believe anything. Let us take a simple example. When in recent years one has presented the anthroposophical view of the world and someone or other felt obliged to assert his own views in opposition to it, one could often hear it said, yes, Kant has, through his philosophy, proved that man has limits to his knowledge, and that the knowledge that the spiritual scientific world conception seeks to attain cannot be reached. They then cite some very interesting things purporting to show that Kant has proved that one cannot penetrate into the spiritual world with human faculties of knowledge. If one nevertheless upholds spiritual science, these people come and assert that one is rejecting everything that Kant has proved. And, of course, the assertion that is thereby implied is that one must be a particularly foolish person to reject what has been so strictly proved. This is not so. The spiritual scientist does not deny that what Kant has proved is absolutely correct, and it is clear that this has been well demonstrated. But suppose that at the time when the microscope had not been invented someone had come up with a firm idea that there are minute cells in the plant which no one could find because human eyes are not adapted for this. This argument would have to be firmly accepted and this would be absolutely correct. For the human eye, EYE, as it is constituted, can never penetrate into the plant's organism to the extent of seeing these tiniest cells. An absolutely correct conclusion that can never be overturned. Yet life evolved in such a way that the microscope was invented as an aid to the human eye and that despite the above conclusion human beings have arrived at a knowledge of the most minute cells only when it is seen that conclusive proofs are completely useless for reaching a knowledge of the truth that arguments can be correct but actually do not have any particular significance for the knowledge of truth only then will one be standing upon the right foundation. One will then know that arguments and proofs may be all very well, but their task is not that of leading to the truth. If you just think of the comparison that I have given, you will see that Kant's assertion that human knowledge cannot extend to the supersensible worlds is just as valid as the argument that the human power of vision cannot reach to the cell. The proofs and arguments were absolutely correct, but life goes beyond such means of verification. This too is something that one discovers on the path of spiritual research, that one broadens one's horizon by appealing to something other than the human intellect and its proofs. Anyone who limits himself to materialistic ideas is indeed led to a boundless belief in proofs. If he has a proof in his pocket, he is wholly convinced of the truth. Spiritual science will show us that one can indeed perfectly well furnish proofs of one thing or another, but that intellectual proofs have no significance for arriving at real truth. It is therefore a symptom of our materialistic age that people become short-sighted in their intellectual views. If moreover this intellectual short-sightedness is also imbued with passions, something comes about which we do not only see in the war that European peoples are waging with weapons, but in their hostile attitude to one another, where one country accuses the others of all manner of things without any prospect that one might ever, not only during the war, be able to convince the others. Moreover, anyone who thinks that a neutral state might ever be able to choose between the assertions of two hostile states is simply being naive. Of course, what is advanced from the one side is equally well represented and furnished with all sorts of proofs by what is said from the other side. One acquires real insight only if one enters into the deeper foundations of the whole of human evolution. A few years before the outbreak of this war, I tried through the cycle about individual folk souls and their influence upon human individuals in the various European territories to cast a little light upon how the different nations relate to one another, while indicating that different forces rule over the various peoples. Today we shall supplement what was said in these lectures with some further perspectives. Our materialistic age thinks in too abstract a way. Above all, no account is taken in our materialistic age of something such as the real development that takes place in life that a person needs to bring to maturity what is within him in order that it may gradually ripen into a real judgment. As we know from what is fully described entitled The Education of the Child from the Standpoint of Spiritual Science, a human being undergoes a development such that in the first seven years his physical body, from the seventh until his fourteenth year his etheric body, and so on, are especially developed. Just as there is little awareness of this progressive development of the human individual, there is even less awareness of the parallel phenomenon a phenomenon that is of equivalent significance. The processes that are enacted within and among the various peoples are, as we all know from spiritual science, guided and directed by beings of the higher hierarchies. We speak in the true sense of the word of folk souls, of folk spirits. We know, for example, that the folk spirit of the Italian people inspires what we call the sentient soul, that the French folk spirit inspires what we call the intellectual or mind soul, that the inhabitants of the British Isles are inspired by the consciousness soul, while in Central Europe it is what we call the human ego that is inspired. However, this does not imply any value judgment about the various nations. It is simply a statement that this is so. It is, for example, stated that a fundamental inspiration of the people inhabiting the British Isles is that as a nation it brings into the world everything that is brought about through the folk spirit by means of the inspiration of the consciousness soul. It is remarkable how nervous people become in relation to this theme. When, during the events of the war, I have again mentioned things that I already spoke about in the cycle referred to, there have been people who almost regarded it as a kind of insult to the British people when I said that they had the task of inspiring the consciousness soul, whereas the German folk soul has to inspire the human ego. It was as though one were to take it as an insult if one were to say that salt is white and paprika is red. It is a simple characterization, the expression of an existing truth and it has to be accepted as such. One will be able to deal much better with the prevailing issues between the various groups comprising members of humanity as a whole if one considers the qualities possessed by the various peoples, in contrast to mixing everything up, as the modern materialistic conception tends to do. Of course, the individual human being rises above what he receives through his folk-soul, and it is the task of our anthroposophical society to raise the human individual out of the group soul nature so that he is elevated to the life of humanity as a whole but the fact nevertheless remains that in so far as he belongs to a particular nation a human individual is inspired in a certain direction by these qualities of this nation that, for example, the Italian folk spirit speaks to the sentient soul, the French folk spirit to the intellectual or mind soul, and the British folk spirit to the consciousness soul. We therefore have to imagine that the folk soul is, as it were, hovering over what human individuals initiate within the various nations. But just as, in the case of an individual human being, there is a development such that one can say, The ego reaches a certain stage of development at a particular time of life, so can one also speak with respect to the folk soul of a development in relation to its people, of a real development. However, this development is somewhat different from that of the individual human being. Let us take the Italian people as an example. Thus we have this particular nation, and then the folk soul that belongs to it. The folk soul is a being from the supersensible world and belongs to the world of the higher hierarchies. It inspires the sentient soul. And this continues to happen for as long as the Italian people, since we are speaking of this people, exists. But it inspires the sentient soul in the most various ways at v- different times. There are times when the folk souls inspire those belonging to particular nations in such a way that this inspiration occurs, as it were, on a soul level. The folk soul then hovers in higher regions of the spirit, and its inspiration is exerted only upon soul qualities. Then there are times when folk souls reach down further and engage more strongly with the individual members of the nation, inspiring them so forcefully that not only does a person receive them into his soul qualities but the influence is so strong that his bodily qualities are also dependent on the folk soul. As long as a people is influenced by the folk soul in such a way that the folk soul only inspires soul-spiritual qualities, the national type is not so pronounced. In such a case, the forces of the folk soul do not penetrate into the blood of individual human beings. Then comes a time when even from the way that a person looks out of his eyes and from his facial features, it is possible to discern the influence of the folk spirit. What manifests itself is that the folk soul has descended more deeply. It strongly and intensively takes hold of the whole human being. In the case of the Italian people, the time of which I have spoken when the folk spirit descends deeply when its influence can be discerned through the impression that it makes on human individuals, was roughly in the middle of the 16th century, around 1550. Then the folk soul, as it were, retraced its influence, and from this time onward it is transmitted through heredity to the descendants. The most intensive union of the Italian people with its folk soul was around 1550. It is then that the Italian folk soul descends most deeply. It is then that this people, inhabiting the Italian peninsula, acquires its distinctive character. If we go back to the time before 1550, we see that the characteristic features are not so pronounced. Only then does what is characteristic of the Italian character really have its beginning. It was then that what we may think of as the real marriage between the Italian folk soul and the sentient soul of the human beings belonging to the Italian people took place. For the French people, I am therefore not speaking of the individual human being who can rise above the national character. The similar moment when the folk spirit therefore descended most deeply and fully, penetrated the whole nation, occurred in approximately 1600. At the beginning of the seventeenth century. It was then that the forecastle completely took hold of the intellectual or mind soul. For the British people, the comparable time was in the middle of the seventeenth century, around 1650. It was then that the British nation first acquired its characteristically British expression. If you know such things, much will begin to be understandable to you. For you can, for example, raise a question such as this in a completely different way. How is Shakespeare's connection with England to be understood? Shakespeare was active in England before the folk spirit exerted its influence most intensively upon the English people. This is why he was not properly understood in England. There are known to be editions of his plays where everything not to the taste of governesses is edited out. Shakespeare is all too often reduced to the most superficial moralizing, and we are well aware that Shakespeare was most deeply understood not in England, but in the cultural development of Central Europe. You will now be asking when the folk spirit came in contact with those belonging to the Central European people. The situation is as follows. Through the fact that in Central Europe the ego is the most important element and that a kind of descent of the folk spirit takes place, and then a withdrawal, then a further descent, and a further withdrawal, there are repetitions of this cycle. Thus approximately in the time when the wonderful legends of Parseval and the Grail arose, we have such a descent of the folk spirit, its union with individual souls, and a withdrawal and a next descent roughly between the years 1750 and 1830. It was then that what lives in Central Europe was fully embraced by the folk spirit of Central Europe. Since then, there has again been a withdrawal of the folk spirit. So you see that it is perfectly understandable that, say, Jakob Burma lived at a time when he could receive little from the German folk spirit. This was not the time when the folk spirit united itself with the individual souls of the people. Thus, although he is referred to as the Teutonic philosopher, Jakob Boehme is a person who, as regards the time when he lived, is independent of his folk spirit, a kind of uprooted phenomenon, a breath of eternity in his time. If we take Lessing, Schiller and Goethe, they are additionally German philosophers who are rooted in the German folk spirit. It is wholly characteristic that these philosophers, living in the time between 1750 and 1830, are deeply rooted in their folk soul. So you see that it is not merely a question of knowing that in the Italian nation the folk spirits work through the sentient soul, that in the French nation the folk spirit works through the intellectual soul, that in the British nation the folk spirit works through the consciousness soul, and that in the case of the Central European people, the folk spirit works through the ego, but that one must also know that this happens at particular times. Moreover, the events that take place can only be explained historically if one really knows such things. The nonsense pursued in the form of science, where one bases everything on documents and lists the events in sequence and says that one must lead to the next, this nonsense leads the historical researcher not to a real history, to an understanding of human evolution, but to a falsification of what works and weaves in human history. And if one now sees how the forces which drive these national entities, and of course other such entities could also be characterized, work in a totally different way on the various nations, one sees the contrasting elements that are present. One sees that what happens today has not only been happening in the last two years, but has been prepared over centuries. Let us look toward the East, toward the region that bears Russian culture. The whole distinctive quality of Russian culture is that it can only really develop when the Russian folk soul unites with the spirit self. This has already been spoken of in the cycle referred to. This means that a future time must come, when the characteristic features of the European East will, for the first time, acquire a definite form. And this will be completely different from what takes place in Western or Central Europe. For the time being, however, it is understandable that what is assigned to Russian culture does not yet exist, but that Russian culture, and also the individual human being, relates to the spirit-self by always looking up to it, Individual Russians, and even deep-thinking Russian philosophers, do not express the loftiest thoughts as is done in Central Europe, but in a completely different way. Here we find something highly characteristic. For what is a distinctive quality of Central European life? You all know that there was a time of the great mystics when Meister Eckhart, Johannes Tauler, and others were all active. They all sought the divine essence that is contained in the human soul. They endeavored to find the God within them, quote, the little spark within the heart, close quote, as Eckhart expressed it. Within the soul, they said, there must be something where the Godhead is directly present. And so there arose that aspiration where the ego sought to unite itself with the Godhead within. This divine essence The Godhead was to be striven for. It called for an active process of development. This is a characteristic feature of the whole of Central European cultural life. Just think of the infinite depth of feeling expressed by someone who, I might say, is internationally recognized as being representative of Central European culture and spiritual life, Angulus Silesius. When he says in one of the beautiful verses contained in his Karubinischer Bandesmann. When I die, it is not I who dies, but God dies in me. Consider how infinitely profound this is. For someone who says this has livingly grasped the idea of immortality, and that he has felt, when a human individual dies, this means that the person concerned is imbued with the Godhead. This phenomenon of death is one that has to do not with man, but with God, and since God cannot die, death must only be an illusion. Death can therefore not be a destruction of life. Someone who says, quote, When I die, it is not I who dies, but God dies in me, close quote, knows of the existence of the immortal soul. It is a feeling of infinite depth that lives in Angela Silesius. This is a consequence of the fact that the inspiration here occurs in the ego. When the inspiration occurs in the sentient soul, something can happen as it did, for example, in the case of Giordano Bruno. This friar felt passionately engaged with the discoveries of Copernicus. He felt that the whole world was enlivened. If you read anything that Giordano Bruno has written, you will find it confirmed that inasmuch as he derived from an Italian background. He furnishes the proof that the folk soul is here inspiring the sentient soul. Cartesius or Descartes was born at the time of French development that has been characterized when the French folk spirit fully united itself with the French people. If you read a page of Descartes, the French philosopher, you will find that on every page he confirms what spiritual science finds that the inspiration of the folk spirit is influencing the intellectual soul. If you read Locke or Hume or another English philosopher up to and including Mill and Spencer, you find throughout the inspiration of the consciousness soul. If you read Fichte, as he struggles within the ego itself, you have the inspiration of the ego through the folk soul. This is characteristic of the fact that this Central European folk soul is experienced within the ego, and that therefore the ego is the truly aspirational quality with, I may say, all its strength and errors, its mistakes and its conquests. If someone from Central Europe is to find the path to Christ, he needs to give birth to him within his own soul. Try to find in the cultural life of Russia, if it has not been Outwardly overwhelmed by Western culture, this idea of experiencing Christ or God in one's inner being, you will not be able to find it. The expectation is always that what enters into history manifests itself, as Soloviev says, as a miracle. Russian cultural life is very inclined to look for the resurrection of Christ in the supersensible world. But this is as though man were down below and the source of inspiration were moving about above mankind like a cloud, and not as though it was penetrating into the human ego. This intimate fellowship of the ego with its God, or also, if it has to do with Christ, with Christ, this desire for Christ to be born within one's own soul can only be found in Central Europe. And when East European culture arrives at the stage of development that is appropriate for it, this will become apparent through the founding of a culture that, as it were, hovers above man, that represents a kind of group soul quality, although at a higher level than the old group souls. At present, we must find it perfectly natural that in the way that even Russian philosophers speak, there is always a sense of something that, as though hovers above the human world, which one can never approach as intimately as someone from Central Europe wishes with his ego to approach the divine essence that works and weaves through the world. And when I have myself often spoken of the Godhead that weaves and surges through the world, this emanates from the feeling world of a Central European, and would not be understood by any other European nation in the same way that it can be received by the feeling life of Central Europe. This is the characteristic quality of the people of Central Europe. These are the forces that live in the different peoples and that confront one another, and which therefore again and again have to engage in conflicts involving powerful discharges and explosions, just as clouds release their burden of rain and cause lightning and storms. But do we not see, one might now say, that words have resounded in the East as a kind of rallying cry? with the intention that the culture of Eastern Europe should begin now, that it should extend over the unworthy West of Europe and overwhelm it? Do we not see that the Slavophiles, the Pan-Slavists and Pan-Slavism, have appeared exemplified especially in figures such as Dostoevsky and others, that in his program Dostoevsky put forward particular points where he says, All you Western Europeans... You have a degenerate culture that must be replaced by Eastern Europe. A whole theory was then established, a theory which culminated essentially by saying, In the West everything has become decadent, and it must be replaced by the fresh forces of the East. We have the good Orthodox religion, which we do not oppose. We have accepted it as the cloud of the folk spirit hovering over people and so forth. And then some brilliant theories were built up as to what might be the principles and intentions of the ancient Slavic world, and how from the East truth should now extend its sway over Central and Western Europe. I said that the individual can rise above his national identity. In a certain sphere, the great Russian philosopher Soloviev was such an individual. Although one can discern in every line that he writes as a Russian, he stands above his national character. In the first period of his life, Siloviyev was a pan-Slavist. But he then penetrated more deeply into what the pan-Slavists and Slavophiles presented as a kind of philosophy or world conception of nations. And what did Siloviyev as a Russian find? He asked himself, Does that which constitutes the Russian nature Exist in the present time? Is this perhaps already contained in what is advocated by those who represent pan Slavism and the Slavophiles? He did not rest until he discovered the truth. And what did he find? He investigated the assertions of the Slavophiles to whom he had previously belonged in a very thorough way, and he found that a large part of the thought forms, assertions, and intentions were taken from the French philosopher de Maistre, who sympathized with the Jesuits, that he was the great teacher of the Slavophiles as regards their world conception. Slobiev himself demonstrated that Slavophilism did not grow out of Russian soil, but was derived from de Maistre. And he also discovered something else. He unearthed a long-forgotten German book from the 19th century, which no one in Germany knows about. The Slavophiles extracted whole portions from it in their literature. What is the strange phenomenon that confronts us here? People believe that something that is supposedly derived from the East comes from there, and it is a Western import. It came from the West and is being sent back again to people in the West. People in the West are made acquainted with their own thought-forms, because the thought-forms peculiar to the East do not yet exist. When things are clearly investigated, there is always confirmation of what spiritual science has to say. Thus, in what seeks to roll in from the East, we are dealing with something that is still elemental, with something that will only be developed if it receives what has developed in Central Europe as lovingly as Central Europe lovingly received Greek and Latin culture from the South. For the course of human development is such that the later absorbs what came before. And the Faust mentality that I was able to characterize in yesterday's public lecture, when I spoke of the year 1770, was experienced by Goethe as a Faustian aspiration when he said, quote, Philosophy have I digested, the whole of law and medicine. From each its secrets I have wrested, theology, alas, thrown in. Poor fool! With all this sweated lore, I stand no wiser than before, close quote. Translated by Philip Wayne, end of footnote. There then arose a rich German cultural life, an immensely rich, intense striving in German culture. But if Goethe had written his Faust forty years later, he would certainly not have begun with, Habe nun ach philosophie, English philosophy have I digested, and so forth, and have become the wise man of all ages, but he would, nevertheless, have written his Faust, as he did in 1770. This living aspiration enters the ego from the inspiration of the folk soul, from that intimate connection of the ego with the folk spirit. This is a fundamental quality of the spiritual culture of Central Europe, and East European culture must lovingly unite itself with it it must accept it. That which had to flow to Central Europe was in former times absorbed from cultures of the South. When this elemental wave of development comes rolling in from the East, it is as if the pupil is angry with his teacher because he ought to be learning something from him and therefore wants to give him a good hiding. It is a somewhat trivial comparison, but it is nevertheless a comparison that presents the actual state of affairs. Large numbers of people live together in Europe with completely different developmental forces. These different developmental forces must actively compete with one another. They must assert themselves in a variety of ways. The opposing forces that undoubtedly exist, forces that come in conflict with one another, have long been developing. And it is when one attends to the finer details that one finds everywhere, the things that spiritual science has to say. It is a wonderful thing that the wave of European development should concentrate itself in such a way as to present before the whole of mankind a symbolic picture of how in Central Europe the intimate connection of the ego with the spiritual world is experienced, how God may be experienced in, quote, the little spark within the heart, close quote how Christ may be experienced in the little spark within the heart. Christ himself must become a living presence within the human ego. Hence, as in no other European language, the whole development in Central Europe tends gradually toward what is called the ego, or I, ich. And the German word ich is I, C-H, ich, which is equivalent to i dash. CH or Jesus Christ, as in Central Europe like a mighty symbol reflecting the intimate interplay of what can be the soul's holiest possession with the soul itself, Jesus Christ and the human ego at one and the same time. Thus does the folk spirit work, inspiring the people, in order to express in characteristic words what the underlying facts are. I well know that people laugh when something of this kind is said, when it is said that the folk spirit worked for centuries in order that the word Ich, which is of such symbolic significance, came about. But let people laugh. After no more than a few centuries, they will no longer laugh. They will regard this as having far more significance than what are referred to today as laws of nature. The influence of this wave of development has been highly characteristic. Only a very small part of the truth comes to conscious expression. But what works in the unconscious depths is expressive of a far greater degree of truth. We speak, for example, of Germanic peoples. Words are formed by the active genius of language. One part of the inhabitants of Central Europe calls itself German, But when one speaks of Germanic peoples, this includes Germany, Austria, Holland, the Scandinavian nations, and also those living in the British Isles. The word Germanic extends over a wide area. Someone living in the British Isles, however, rejects it. When he uses the word German, he just means those living in Germany. He does not have an equivalent for the German word germane, except in the historical sense of ancient German or Teuton. The German language encompasses a far wider meaning with the word. It tends, as such, toward putting the word at the service of selflessness. The German does not only refer to himself when he uses the word germane, but includes all the others as well. The Briton rejects this. If you explore the wonders of the creative genius of language, you will see that there really is something wonderful there. With regard to what people have in their consciousness, there arises maya, the great illusion. What works in unconscious depths is far more true in its influence. Here something immensely significant and profound comes to expression. Readers aside, there is a word here, g-e-r-m-a-n-e, which we would pronounce Germain, but I think Steiner means something else by that, but I don't know what it is. End of readers aside. Now, compare with the way that one must sensitively set to work in order to understand the play of forces at work in Europe, the utter coarseness of the way that the relationships between the European nations are viewed today. And you will be able to see the extent of the devastation that the age of materialism has wrought in the human power of judgment. The worst thing is not that people have begun to think that matter bears and supports everything, but that they have become short-sighted, that they are unable to see what is fundamental and do not even take a step behind the veil that is woven over truth as maya. Materialism has well prepared what it sought to achieve. Here, too, a genial spirit has been active, although it is the genius who is the leading driver of materialism Ahriman, he has had an immense influence in recent centuries, a very considerable influence. I would like briefly to refer to a chapter which people may perhaps prefer to ignore today, and if their attention is drawn to it, they look upon this as a particular form of insanity. You see, the easiest way to influence people is to drip-feed their souls and imaginations when they are still young with what will develop within them later. In later life, very few people can really be taught anything. Araman would never have better prospects of preparing souls in a genuinely materialistic way than if he drip-feeds the souls of young people and children with what continues to work on in the unconscious. If materialistic thought forms are absorbed in the period when people do not yet think intellectually, they will learn to think in a thoroughly materialistic way, through the materialism that has been implanted in children's souls. Ahriman achieved this by inspiring a writer of the materialistic age with the idea of title Robinson Crusoe. Anyone who attentively reads Robinson Crusoe will see the extent of the influence of materialistic ideas in it. This may not be obvious at first, but the entire book, how it is constructed, how in this life of adventure... He is led to everything through outward experience until finally even religion grows out of the soil like cabbages, well, prepares the child's soul for materialistic thinking. And when one considers that over a certain period, the 17th and 18th centuries, there were Bohemian, Portuguese, Hungarian, and other Robinson Crusoe's as imitations of the original, it becomes clear that the task was thoroughly achieved and that the contribution that the reading of Robinson Crusoe has made to the development of materialism is very considerable. In contrast to such phenomena, it should be indicated that there is something else that children should be given as nourishment for their understanding until late in life. These are the fairy tales that live in Central Europe, and especially the fairy tales collected by the Brothers Grimm. This is much better literature for children than Robinson Crusoe, and if in our time what is happening is so terrible, fateful a way between the European nations is understood as an incitement to look more closely at the way that what now manifests itself in the present has been developing beneath the surface of events, one will readily come to see that it is not ultimately a question of whether a few scholars send their titles and diplomas back to England. If the incitement afforded by this time proves to be so strong that one recognizes the materialistically inspired consciousness soul of the British people in its full significance, one will also perceive the significance of letting children read Robinson Crusoe and prevent this happening. If one comes to be able to take account of the warnings of our present time, one will have to set to work in a much more thorough and more radical way. It is now thirty-five years since I began to interpret Goethe's spiritual scientific task. I tried to show that in Goethe's theory of evolution, something of great spiritual magnitude was presented. The time must come when this is perceived more widely, for Goethe has given a great powerful theory of evolution, which has spiritual stature. People found this difficult to understand. Darwin, who gave in a coarser, materialistic way what Goethe had presented in a more refined spiritual form in his theory of evolution, was able to have greater influence in the age of materialism. Central Europe was thoroughly taken over by England. Think of the tragedy of this situation, that the most English scientist in Germany, Ernst Haeckel, who swore by Darwin, should have felt such a furious hatred for everything English. And when the war broke out, he was one of the first to return to England the awards and diplomas that he had received. He was probably already too old to send back the so characteristically English theories of Darwin, but that would have been more to the point and far more important. What is involved here is something so infinitely profound and meaningful, and it is connected with the spiritual deepening of our time that needs to happen. If one comes to see that Goethe's theory of color has far greater depth than that of Newton, that Goethe's theory of evolution is much more profound than that of Darwin, one will be aware of what lies concealed in Central Europe also in relation to such important fields of research. I want in this way to give you a feeling of the sense of urgency that the present difficult and destiny-laden events need to arouse within us, an exhortation to work which should lead us to reflect upon what lies hidden in the cultural life of Central Europe and which is, in a certain sense, our responsibility to draw forth. This is also what I meant when I said yesterday in the public lecture that this cultural, spiritual life of Central Europe contains seeds that must bring forth blossoms and fruit. If we acknowledge again and again that the conscious life of the soul carries on at the surface, while beneath it lies all that has been spoken of during these days, we may also reflect upon the fact that, in the impulses of many people in the present, something is living which is quite different from that of which they are conscious. Do not think that those people in the West and the East whose task it is to defend the great fortress of Central Europe are fighting only for what they are aware of at the surface of consciousness. We should, above all, be looking at the impulses of which many of those who are dying on the battlefields are unconscious. But these impulses are there, they exist. And we should, from spiritual science, be able, as we look toward both east and west, to evoke the feeling that in the impulses of those who make these sacrifices something lives that will become outwardly manifest only in the future, even though those engaged in fighting have hardly any conscious idea of this. Only if we consider what is happening at present in this light will we be filled with feelings that are right and appropriate. But just think how many souls involved in these events with which nothing in the conscious history of mankind can be compared as regards their military scale, are suffering violent deaths and that these souls will look down upon the death that has been thrust upon them by the great events of this time. Recall what I said the day before yesterday about the youthful etheric bodies filling the spiritual atmosphere. Consider that not only will their souls, their individualities, be in the spiritual world, but that impulses from these youthful etheric bodies that can be used will pervade the spiritual atmosphere. Let us try, out of this situation, to perceive the awakening calls which those who remain here on the earth must be hearing. For, indeed, the human individual who has passed through the gate of death calls attention to the great tasks that are to be accomplished in European culture. And people must, out of the depths of spiritual life, sense this urgency to engender feelings born out of knowledge with respect to the true nature of the world in which we live. If one comes to feel in this sense that each person who falls on the battlefield in the flower of his youth is the bearer of an exhortation, a call for the spiritualization of humanity in the context of European culture, one will have understood this rightly. It is not enough that an abstract knowledge goes out from centers such as the one where we are gathered, that man consists of a physical body, etheric body, astral body and an ego and that he passes through many incarnations and has a karma and so forth. One would wish that the souls who participate in our spiritual scientific life will be stirred in their innermost depths to that feeling life of which I have spoken, to sharing in the immediate future in the experience of the awakening calls of those who have died prematurely. The most wonderful experience that we can have as people committed to spiritual science is of the living life that should pass like a breath through the ranks of those who belong to our movement. Not knowledge alone, not mere understanding, but this life, making this life a true reality. In ancient times a number of members have left the physical plane. Among them was a young fellow-member, our dear Fritz Mitcher. Karma brought it about that I had the task to speak at the cremation in Basel. I had to address certain words to the departing soul. Among many other things that I said to the soul was that we know that he will continue to work with us also after he has passed through the gate of death. I had to say this out of the awareness that what inspires and animates us all is no mere theory, but that what we express in the form of theoretical thoughts must fill our whole soul with life. But then we must relate to those who have passed through the gate of death as to those who still live here on earth. Indeed, we should not hesitate to say to ourselves, those who live in a physical body are prevented through the most manifold circumstances from fully living a spiritual life. What a lot of impediments we can discern in this physical earthly life where it is a question of recognizing the really great tasks of evolution, and even more so when it is a case of fulfilling them, but the dead are far more reliable. This sense that the dead are among us, that a special mission has been entrusted to them, guided me when I spoke the words of commemoration for our friend Fritz Mitcher, who passed prematurely through the gate of death. And what was said for him relates to many others who have crossed this threshold. We see in them our most important collaborators, and it will not be misunderstood when I say that in our spiritual work we can rely far more on the dead than on the living. But in order to be able to say this, We must be livingly engaged in what our spiritual movement can give us. My basic premise is that also in an outward sense those who have crossed the threshold of death in our destiny-laden time are our most important collaborators in the spiritualizing of the human culture of the future. For the death to which those who have passed through this portal look back becomes a great teacher Many people today need stronger teachers than life can give. One can see this through numerous examples. I should like to give an example out of many others that could be given. A sensational article opposing the spiritual science which I advocate appeared several years ago in a journal called Hochland that is published in South Germany. This article created a great stir. Many people were convinced by it. Because it was written by a famous professor of philosophy. The editor of that journal, Hochland, Highland, accepted this article. He has thereby propagated, as he thinks, a view of this confounded spiritual science that is worthy of consideration. You see, it is really not a question of defending oneself against such things with outward means. It is absolutely understandable that all clever, modern people find spiritual science to be utter folly. But after the outbreak of the war, something else occurred. The editor of the journal in question is a good German, a man with good German feelings. The author whose article he had published now wrote letters to that editor, who, in, shall we say, his blessed innocence, printed them in the Süddeutsche Monat Hefte. If you try to read them, you will see what that same philosopher writes to the editor of Hochland is full of venomous hatred of the spiritual culture of Central Europe, so that the editor feels obliged to say, anyone who thinks like this can in Central Europe only be found in madhouses. Just think how immensely significant this criticism is. There is an editor of a South German journal. This editor accepts an article, which he considers to be an authority. Means of destroying spiritual science, and of which he says, This is a good article about spiritual science by a famous philosopher. After some time, the editor receives things written by the same man, which he then refers to as coming from someone who belongs to the madhouse. But should one not, in accordance with living logic, continue by saying that if this man is now a fool, was he not also a fool before? and that the good editor did not realize at the time that in the case of the critical article about spiritual science he was dealing with a fool? This is living logic. One can sometimes not wait until such living logic takes effect. Nevertheless, it is an active force in our life, and one can therefore sometimes experience something further after such a reception. The article appeared at the time as a criticism of my spiritual science. People read it and said, Yes, this is written by a famous philosopher and Platonist. He must be really clever. The editor said, If someone who is so clever writes about spiritual science, this must be a good article. Some time passes, and the same editor says, The man is a fool. But the editor first needed proofs of this, as has been described. Yes, This can be a common experience. Such people who have as little ground under their feet as that editor of the South German Journal need to be taught their lessons by events, which have, through what we have been experiencing recently, been given by the spiritual world in a far deeper sense than one would have wished. You will therefore understand if I return to what I said earlier. Our time has been the scene of many opposing forces. And if we call the war a disease, which we can do, it is a disease which was brought about by something that took place long ago, and it is a healing force, which is a means of eradicating much that had gradually to lead to the damaging of the whole of cultural life. If we think of it as a disease, and if we view the disease as a means of self-defense, we will also understand this war and the destiny-laden events of the present. We will also understand the hints and exhortations that it is giving us. We will then experience it with all the inner forces of our soul, so that we can be really attentive to those who have passed through the gate of death and look toward the near future and will have learned what they are able to inspire within the souls that wish to hear them, that a spiritual deepening that is necessary for the healing and advancement of humanity must enter into them. If your souls are able rightly to receive what I would wish to say with these words, if you are able to make the resolve to become souls of such a kind who direct their attention to what is being whispered from above by those who have passed through the portal of death as a result of the present fateful events, you will in a very real sense be adherents and upholders of our spiritual scientific outlook on the world. A bridge needs to be built in the near future through spiritual science between the living and the dead, a line of communication through which the inspiring elemental forces of those who have in the present time made great sacrifices can find the path across. For this reason I wanted to speak to you, to awaken certain feelings within you. May these feelings be expectant feelings of what is being addressed to souls by the effects of our destiny-laden time. In this sense I shall again conclude with the words that I spoke the day before yesterday. They are intended to work in our souls as a mantra, so that our souls become expectant, expectant of the inspiration that will come from the dead, who are, however, quite especially alive in the spirit. Quote, from the courage of the fighters, from the blood on fields of battle, from the grief of the bereaved, from the people's sacrifice, there will ripen fruit of spirit if souls will turn in consciousness toward the realm of spirit. The end of Lecture 8